but you can go on and turn in James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 13 through 20. And um, last week I, I gave mention to the way in which we, we saw patience. James teaches in patience early in, in the, his letter and how he come back to it at the end. And really a similar thing because with patience he pairs with that prayer at the beginning of his letter. We had a sermon, Faith That Works in Prayer. And now, again, this morning we, we come to a close and we're going to discuss the prayer of faith. And so really this should encompass a lot of what we have learned. It should be paired with all that, uh, that we do as we apply James's teaching to, to us, to the church, and, uh, and, and how we behave in the world. And so now we have this opportunity to look a little bit deeper into that. You're welcome to stand as we read from God's Word together. I'll begin reading in verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not in the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word that you've brought before us. We thank you for the whole study of James. Lord, that you have equipped James, you empowered him for this teaching. And Lord, we are convinced that you will move in this church because of this word from James, even this morning. Lord, we pray, even as I offer this prayer, Lord, that, that you work through it. Lord, that you accept it, that you hear our prayer. Lord, that you guide us in prayer. Lord, that you teach us the things to say. Father, that you hear what is on every heart here this morning. And Lord, that you equip me even in the same way handling this word for which I feel so ill-equipped to do. But Lord, that you would you know, wipe away any drowsiness. Lord, that you would wipe away any uncertainty in the hearts of the saints here, gathered here this morning. And Lord, that you would allow us to come to you faithfully now in this time of the preaching of your word and certainly a time of prayer. 
We ask all of this for our good, but Lord, for your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So prayer, that's what we're talking about. And, and, and I think it's best as we look through this, there's a lot to cover, honestly, uh, somewhat intimidating. What we're going to do, you can follow along in your bulletin and there's an outline there and that, I hope to follow that pretty closely. We're just gonna walk through all that we have just read and we should see the external motivations to prayer, some of these superficial, you know, upon the first reading, then we'll go to something a bit deeper, which I've termed there the internal motivations to prayer. I probably could have just as well said the spiritual motivations to prayer. And then we're going to see how all of this draws us um, necessarily to a love for the church. And so I welcome you to, to, to follow along, fill in a few of those blanks. Hopefully that helps us to engage. So some of us this morning, as we're looking at, at prayer and, and, and the patterns that, that we follow, surely some of us are, are coming here this morning after an exhausting week. I'm a little bit exhausted after working last night and, um, and, and had a little bit of unexpected overtime this week. Uh, but so hopefully that doesn't impair anything. I, I, I pray the Lord glorifies himself in my weakness. But surely you all have experienced exhaustion this week. Some of us are coming with uh, other anxieties in relationships or in their homes or in their finances or, or whatever may happen. Um, and certainly all of us seek to share the, the burdens of our brothers and sisters by lifting them up in prayer. This is a regular part of what we do. And whenever we come to this passage, I, could, I can't help but be filled with motivation to pray for those that are sick, those that are afflicted, or whatever's going on, it fills us with motivation. And I think that right away, that's that, that first notion that we get is what I call that superficial, which by that I simply mean just on the top that initial implication on, on what motivates us to prayer. And I think easily we could say that's need. Need motivates us to prayer. Our needs, uh, needs for those around us, needs for our family members, needs in our communities. And so I want to split that up and look at what are these types of need. And so that first fill in the blank there is, is simply a, that we pray for the sick and or suffering we pray for the sick and suffering. So let me just walk through this as we continue to walk through the passage um, that we have before us in verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. And then looking to verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call to the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So sick and suffering. First, we, we, we've got to see this is the natural response for the Christian, if we are children of God, then we go to him in our time of need. I mean, it's just it seems just a cause and effect. Is there anyone sick? Pray. Is anyone afflicted? Pray. Call to the elders and have them pray. It's what we do. Um, and so if we, it's right, I, I don't want to diminish in any, any way 
Like if I say the external and the internal, both of these are important and both of them are needed and both of them are, are, are quite necessary in the life of the Christian. But, but we should be drawn to prayer for those needs that come out uh, come about around us. And so if we who, who are born again, we look to Christ for, for life and salvation and everything, then it certainly is fitting that we would go to him when uh, the bills fall a little short or that we go to him whenever I've suffered a sickness or a heart attack or stroke as some, some have among us. We, we, yes, we go to the Lord in prayer. This past week, each Wednesday night, if you all aren't a part of this, I hope that you choose to before long, our Wednesday nights we've been gathering together and doing this, praying and lifting up each other in these needs. And we've been doing so paired with a reading from Scripture and seeing patterns of prayer throughout the Bible. And this past week, we were in Job. And we saw uh, Job was a man who was afflicted um, of Satan and, and had everything. His, he had his health taken, his wealth taken, his relationships were shattered. All of this happened. And we saw that Job made known this, this need before the Lord. That, that he comes just honestly before God saying, what is going on? Where are you going with all this? Why am I so suffering like this God? Honest. And it's so interesting because we see that that, that scripture, this word of God about Job, we're told in much of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He had some... And, and those that were there Wednesday, which we had a small group, Joyce was with us, Lila was, she's not here. But man, it, it was bold, bold petitions before the Lord that is, uh, it would be hard for me to bring before the Lord without sinning. But he didn't sin because it's okay. The general presumption is that we should go to God. We should be able to go to Him honestly with our problems, with our temptations, with all that comes before us. And frankly, as we run to God in this way, we ought to expect an answer. I mean, whenever we go to God in faith, believing the relationship that we have with Him and all that He has done on our behalf, it, it's right to expect an answer. Now, that sometimes means healing. I think that it's right for us if we pray for someone to be healed, then we should expect God to move and to heal and to work in that way. I've seen it happen. God has been gracious in that way, but not necessarily. It doesn't mean that it, He must heal. There's no obligation. And I want to talk about that a bit as we are, are discussing the, uh, the prayer of healing. And I think I can tell you this, that the one who neglects to pray in, in these times of need or affliction or the one that neglects to call for those elders to, to come and pray for them is not one who is apt to offer a prayer of faith at all. Amen. We have got to go to the Lord amidst our needs. Uh, it, it is perfectly fitting the contingency comes in verse 15. When we see this praying for the sick and even the anointing of oils, which we'll talk about shortly, and the prayer of faith shall save 
the sick and the Lord raised him up. The prayer of faith. Um, so many charismatics, there's a charismatic movement. I don't mean uh, someone with a certain amount of charisma that maybe I lack due to being a little bit tired this morning. But in the charismatic movement, I've heard this before, that, uh, well, they're not healed because there's a lack of faith. The reason they're sick is because they're not faithful. There's, there's a bit of a, a problem with this. And, and to demonstrate that, I, I want to present to you a, a bit of a contrast in, in a situation of one who's not healed. Certainly many of us have been in circumstances or have had close family we can think of, those times where we've need, needed healing. Consider now a, a, such a, a person who believes that, that it's because of this lack of faith that this healing isn't taking place. I've prayed for healing. God didn't do as I've asked. And so, uh, so they have this dilemma. That person, that charismatic, is now forced to walk away sorrowful, now codifying their lack of faith in God. On the other hand, this faithful, those faithful prayers in our midst, when they're not healed, when they pray and healing never comes, they still have the opportunity to rejoice because they know that they pray in perfect faith and that they know that the God whom they serve is not obliged to heal, but that in everything He works out the good for those who are called according to His purpose. Like Paul says in Romans 8. And so his, his prayer is not based off of the healing. His prayer is not based off of results. His prayer is based in faith. And so, a big difference here, when we consider the patterns of prayer within our modern church life, it begs the question, why then are we slow to make known our petitions uh, before the Lord or, or even to, before the congregation of God's people? Why do we sometimes think this is my business? I perhaps alone will pray whenever James calls us clearly to pray as a church. Amen. Whenever, even whenever he says um, call, to call upon, why do we fail to call upon the elders to pray for the sick? You see, I've, I've heard this. I've actually heard this. You know, I was sick. I had this thing going on in my life. And you know, no one ever even came to check on me. No one came, you know, to ask or see how I was doing or pray. Now, I don't, don't please don't hear me uh, defer uh, blame or guilt here whenever the pastor or the church members are guilty of neglect in going and visiting the sick. That is not what I'm addressing. Still, the point is not lost here that whenever we fail to, to involve ourselves and, and, and to make known these needs and to share, share these burdens with this body of Christ, and even calling to the elders, which I think we're, we're going to see a bit more here in a bit, that it, it, it's no special gift in the elder or pastor as it is just calling upon those leaders who are appointed to this service of prayer and administrating the Word. 
But, but when we fail to, to go and to call upon them and to say, I am sick, I have need, come and administer the word to me. I cannot make it. I think, I, I, I think it, it seems obvious almost that who James is talking about is those who are prevented from coming. Those who are prevented from, from gathering in the fellowship with us. They're sick. They've had operations. They're somehow uh, prevented from being within our gathering. And so they call to the church so that they're, they're, the body is not lost. The unity is not lost. And when we come and we go and we're not sure and well someone works a swing shift or well they miss periodically anyway, we don't know what to expect. It really there is a responsibility on, on, on those to call those elders to call those members, those brothers and sisters to pray for them because in that they show the value that they place on the body of Christ, their unity within the church. I think we're beginning to touch on some of those deeper concerns and motivations in prayer, so we're going to come back to this later. Secondly, uh, that, that second subpoint is we see a prayer of praise. You know, we so often forget this. Our, our focus can be so inward sometimes, I think, that, that we forget to come back to praise for God whenever He has just shown those mercies upon us through answered prayer. I mean, as we pray for those and we see some that, that come back and are restored to fellowship and, and I'm just excited to see Steve and Wanda just, I don't mean to just pick on you guys. It's probably not what you came to church to hear. But I mean, we're excited. We've been praying for them and the Lord's answered prayer and He's restored that fellowship. Man, praise God. We should be praising God for this. And I know, I know they worked hard to get out of the house and I know it's exhausting, but praise God that He did this work in answering us. And so we, we sometimes forget this. And so consider, what does your prayer life look like? Does, does it sound something like this? Um, Lord, we come to you and just thank you for all the ways in which you've blessed us, generically speaking. Uh, I have this request, this request, this request. And then in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Does that sound like your prayers? I mean, I'm, I'm just going to admit that to you. I'm going to confess that. That's coming up. But sometimes I can be guilty of, Lord, we thank you for all the ways in which you've blessed us today. It sounds, sounds great, doesn't it? But are we, really, are we really glorifying God? I think whenever we, de whenever we deprive God of that glory, whenever he has answered prayer, then I think it's as offensive to him whenever we just thoughtlessly tack on, in Jesus' name, amen, like a, a weird luck, sort of lucky charm or something. So go to God with praise. Whenever he is so faithful in answering prayers, should we not fill our time of prayer with times of rejoicing instead of, Lord, thank you for all the stuff you've given me, to say, oh God, how gracious are you, wonderful provider that you have looked upon me, your meek servant who does not deserve this thing. We go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to try to speed up here. The third thing is the anointing of the Lord. And I worded that just so. Because even the, one of the most perplexing things is, uh, for us sometimes is the anointing of oils. How do we practice it? Do we practice it biblically? Do we err in this? Even the expression anointing with oils speaks, it really puts an emphasis on the oils, doesn't it? And, and I think whenever we look at this, it's, oils do have a historical medical use. 
Um, you know, there's people even today use essential oils and plant oils for things. They can be ingested. They can be used topically. They can even use, they were used as medical dressings. We're not talking about a medical use here, anointing of oils. The, surely the people even in that day had others who they could call upon to administer them to them medically, not the leaders of the church. What here we see is an anointing, the same sort of anointing that we see put over priests. Uh, kings were anointed. And in the way that they were set aside, set apart for the work of the, of the Lord. They were set apart unto God for service unto God. And so when we see this anointing with oils, I think it's, it's safe to say that, that the church comes, comes before this sick and they set them before the Lord for the purpose of healing. It's a matter of setting them aside or you, you know, sort of uh, uh, just putting them before the Lord. They're anointed with oils. And so really, when we look at this, even, even those words, Messiah, which is derived from the Hebrew of the Old Testament, and Christ, derived from the Greek of the New Testament, are really the same word, and it means the anointed one. So it's, it's the same thing, this anointing, putting, a setting aside, setting before the Lord for some purpose. And this purpose, it's healing. When we understand this passage, the presence of oil really becomes arbitrary. It is the presence of the Lord and the purpose of the Lord that becomes necessary in matters of healing. So again, we center on the Lord, James reaffirms it's not any special gift of the elders, but it's the, but he, but he has in view that it's the Lord who will raise them up, just like he says there, the Lord shall raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven. This leads us to our deeper study, the internal motivation to prayer, and that's sin. That's one of them. Uh, we're we're going to look at. Surely James remembers that controversial teaching of Jesus. Maybe some of us remember that. Whenever a man born lame was brought before Jesus for the purpose of healing, what did Jesus say? First he said, your sins are forgiven. How controversial. That's who can, who is this who can forgive sins? And he said, well, what is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk? And he tells the man, take up your bed and walk. How gracious is God that he would so meet our needs, our greatest need in forgiving our sin. And he pairs it with healing. But that he would, he would meet the need that sometimes we're so preoccupied to ask. Because we're afflicted. Whenever we meet these times of, of burden, oh, this job or this joblessness, or oh, this physical ailment, or, or this suffering, oh, this anxiety, or this uh, distraught relationship, and that God still comes to us, and he, he does not neglect our sin or sinfulness. He does not neglect our shattered relationship between us and God. He comes and restores what's most important always. And makes that his priority as we come before him in prayer. He even tells us that when we don't know what to, pr to pray, the Spirit prays with groaning too deep for words. And that Christ himself prays always, intercedes for us always on our behalf. So sin of the, of the afflicted is one. 
And so it makes perfect sense if sin is a primary issue and a spiritual motivation for prayer that James moves on to exhort us to the confession of sins. He says in verse 16, Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed and the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is probably one of the most neglected areas in church life in our modern day is the confession of sins. Do we confess our sins faithfully to one another? Maybe next to church discipline. You know, sometimes we don't do that very good. Maybe we neglect the confession of sins because we don't trust church discipline. How odd that is because it's the confession of sins that keeps us from being disciplined. It's so strange that whenever we come and, and, and we relinquish our sin before the Lord, we give it up by way of confession. You see, He's already punished. He's already punished the sin. He's already, he's already done it on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we let it go. We lay that. We touched on that even in Sunday school this morning. We lay that upon the cross. We confess it before God, before our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there's a few things I do want to touch on, and I realize I may run a little bit long this morning. First is that this, when he talks about this confessing sins, it's second person plural, which means he's not talking about your sins are healed, your, your physical sins. It really reads, you all confess your sins to one another so that all of your sins will be forgiven, that you all as a church will be healed. This is a, a really a, a character trait. It's the way that we function. The requirement is not also that, that you should confess your sin to one particular person, not to a priest, not to me, the pastor, or any other elder, not to Brother Chad particularly, or, or really not even that you have to bear all your sins and publish, publicize them to the congregation as a whole, but that you should pick out that one or two or three brothers or sisters in Christ with whom you establish an accountability with regard to your sin. We look to the pastors and things as, as uh, this pious example of how, how to be good, but sometimes we fail as pastors to present ourselves as an example in confession and in repentance. When we look at David, I mean, we'd be fools to look at him as a pious example of, of perfect behavior, but boy, we can look at him for his pattern of confession and repentance. Look to Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O God. We see that. Secondly, we see a lack of confession. It hinders our health. I mean, if it is confess your sins to one another, that ye may be healed. Well, if we're not confessing our sins, perhaps we're not getting healed. Thirdly, maybe it hinders our prayers. Our failure to confess more appropriately this protection that we're putting for our, having for our sins it's hindering our prayers. This reference to the prayers of the righteous is not talking about someone who is pious and right and good and, and doesn't ever mess up. That prayers of the righteous is one who confesses their sins. It's one who repents of their sins. It's one who submits to God according to His will. We've got to develop this pattern of mutual confession. This last internal, what I have called or an internal or spiritual motivation is examples. 
Examples of faith-filled prayer. He looks to, it reads Elias, that's the example of Elijah in the Old Testament. And we see he, he prayed to withhold rain. He prayed to restore rain. And, um, and, and he gave it. And honestly, there's nothing built up in, in Elijah himself. He says he was a man subject to like passions as we are. He's just a man. It's not just that he was a prophet. But that, but that he had a prayer of faithfulness. How many times have you said, oh, I wish I had faith like Elijah, like the prophets? Instead, why don't we pray like, Lord, answer this prayer in this imperfect subject like I've seen you do so many times in Scripture. So those examples of faith-filled prayer, not because you're a prophet, not because there's any setting aside of you, all of this draws us to a love for the church. Now we're going to spend time just explicitly in verses 19 through 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. I hope you have seen the way James is really uniting us to the body of the church. There's no way to get around this. Um, he leaves little room for us to operate independently as Christians. There's a couple areas I want to focus on. First, general healing and individual salvation. I think we've already sort of touched on healing, so I'm not going to for the sake of time. But I regularly do have this conversation, and I've had it with a number of you here uh, this morning, about the church. The first excuse for the Christian who is absent from the body who's not been coming is, I don't have to go to church to be saved. With that, I say, well, I absolutely agree, but you have no idea what the church is or is about. You have no idea because the church is a gift to us. Whenever we come and we see all of this, it's, it's, it's one way. The church is one way, not the only way, but it is one way in which Christ holds us secure. I mean, think, think of this. this. By way of participation in the body, we experience forgiveness now as we confess sins and receive and return grace to each other, that grace of Jesus Christ in response to sin. We are protected from sin in the discipline of the church and by the building up of one another to good works as we as we spur each other on to. We're guarded from false doctrine by the accurate teaching of God's word. We're reminded of the full work of Jesus Christ and things in the ordinances like the Lord's Supper and my baptism. We're helped in times of need whenever we see that kindness of our brothers and sisters who come to our aid when we need it. We're motivated in ministry when we look upon the examples of faithfulness in the church past and present, just like Elijah or even those, those people, uh, you know, those grandparents of ours or those who we've seen to be faithful. We are blessed with a picture of the unity to come in heaven whenever we see the unity of the body of Christ within the church. The, early, the, the outsiders were amazed at the early church how they had everything in common. The church is a gift to us. 
And there is a wonderful grace of God displayed in all of, of, these, uh, of these functions as the body of Christ. The last thing, the covering of a multitude of sins. Who's being covered in that? Shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. James has, has not been shy in addressing us throughout this whole letter. He's been quite specific, actually. Now I think he's being intentionally vague and, 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 and sort of allowing us to stay unified and take a big picture view of what the bride of Christ is supposed to look like. I think that he's letting us know that it's all of the sins of all of the church that, that Christ hopes to purify. In other words, your sin affects me. My sin affects you. And let me promise you, it does. Whether it's unaware, we've been in a church where there has been grave sin from the pulpit and it affected the church drastically. Did it not, Rachel? Amen. So we pray for one another. You pray for your pastor. I, I, I don't really like the expression, I covet your prayers, but boy, I want them. I so desperately need to be protected the way that you all need to be protected. It affects us. Your life affects the church we're one. And so as we evaluate, I mean, we just cannot separate ourselves. As we evaluate our faithfulness together before the Lord, I want to caution you. As we consider life as the church, coming to Christ, if you hope to be a part of the body of Christ in eternity, I strongly urge you to participate in the body now. It only makes sense. And what a blessing that the church is and what glory the bride of Christ brings to God whenever we function in that way. And so now, there's a lot. I know I covered a lot, and so now you're thinking, well, Chad wasn't the liar, I was the liar. You know, I went over. But I want us to consider some things. We're going to have the Lord's Supper, and there's a lot of pictures there. This is a huge blessing. One of these is, and it's a blessing to the church, those who are born again, if you are not, if you have never looked to Christ in this way, I want to caution you from taking that. The scriptures tell us that you eat and drink condemnation on, your, on yourself. It's pointless for you. But, but I also want to invite you to this blessing and to this table. If you so accept Christ and you accept that work that He does for all eternity, that He's done once and for all, for all of your sins, that, that you accept the work that He provides, even within His body now, in upholding and protecting and building you up and protecting you in the way that we've heard, then come and participate. But I have a feeling, I know even within my own heart, as we come and partake of this body, there is a much needed time of confession before the Lord. That I'm, I just don't think that we have done justice. And so as we prepare, I, I want to close in a word of prayer. And, and, and it's going to be a little bit different. I want us to pray and go directly in. I, I'll meet right here and, and those who hope to, to share that. But first, I would like for us to gather. And if you have family, you're welcome to huddle up and to confess your sins Offer grace to one another. Show that Christ is very much alive within His church today as we come and consecrate ourselves before the Lord and prepare ourselves for the taking of this body, this symbol 
of the way as we, as we apply all that Christ is, all His teachings, all His sacrifice, all that He does within us now, and we apply it just the same way that we eat bread and drink from the vine. And so now I want to close in a time of prayer and I want to give us a moment to stand and to, to get together. I would actually love it if my wife and perhaps my sister-in-law would come up here with my kids so that we can have time, you know, maybe with Joyce and her niece and we can pray. Let's do that now and we'll close and prepare for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to New Life Preaching, sermons from New Life Baptist Church, where we grow in discipleship, grow in relationship, and we grow in Jesus Christ. Please subscribe so that you don't miss a Sunday.